Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcast. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. I'm here today with Daria Kalinyuk, the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine, which is one of the leading anti-corruption civil society organizations in Ukraine. It's been doing a lot of very interesting and important work. So, Daria, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. To get things started, could you please tell our listeners a little bit more about your own background and how you came to work on corruption, anti-corruption issues? Sure. I'm a lawyer by training. And when I was a student, I was doing a lot of volunteer civil society activity. But whatever I would do in the youth movement, uh, I would end up with seeing corruption, uh, which was preventing good things from moving forward. So I was doing some initiatives in orphanages, uh, some European integration projects in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the remote areas, some cultural projects. But actually, at certain point, corruption would stop me from moving ahead and from actually bringing the change. And then I, I started to explore what could we do with this key root problem from the point of view of a lawyer. I had a chance to study in the U.S. for one year at the Fulbright program, and I explored international legal tools which could be used to tackle grant corruption in the developing countries. So I was trying to find tools and solutions which exist on the global level for the country like Ukraine. And when I came back, I co-founded the Anti-Corruption Action Center, and we simply started to implement and test various tools and solutions in Ukraine. So w when was that? Was that before or after the so-called Maidan revolution that toppled the Yanukovych regime? It was right before. It was in 2012, in the middle of the Yanukovych running the country. Uh, it was a very interesting historical moment in Ukraine, as everyone knew about grand corruption. Investigative journalists in Ukraine did a very good job. They were actually reporting about grand money laundering scheme, engaging abuse of power. All that was well documented and it was public. So normally, in a democratic country uh, with a strong rule of law, these investigative journalists' reports would trigger reaction of law enforcement and control and agencies. In Ukraine, it was impossible to trigger such kind of reaction. And therefore, we set up ANTAC as a bridge between investigative journalists' reports and between law enforcement and controlling agencies, but not only in Ukraine, but also outside of Ukraine. So this is what I've learned in the United States. If corruption and corrupt conduct is done in one country, the money, actually, with high likelihood, will be spent in another well-developed country where perpetrators can enjoy rule of law, enjoy healthcare, enjoy luxurious vacations. And here is where we can actually use international legal tools to tackle corruption and to, to tackle these perpetrators. So this was behind the logics of the work of ANTAC. 
we started to map the assets of Yanukovych and his close associates. It was merely based on already available public information produced by investigative journalists. We just reframed it in a legal way and we highlighted all foreign assets, foreign companies, foreign enablers, lawyers, notaries who were part of this enabling scheme for the president Yanukovych corrupt assets. And we actually ran a campaign during the Maidan revolution, which was aiming to, to seize foreign assets of Yanukovych and his close associates. We ran different street protests across Europe and actually in the United States as well, in New York, against institutions which were taking money of Yanukovych. So, for example, we did a protest in front of the Deutsche Bank in different countries in, in the EU and in the United States. We did a few actions in, in Austria and it actually helped in a certain way to trigger seizures and personal sanctions against Yanukovych and his associates in the EU and in the United States. But it happened actually after 100 people were killed in the central square of Kyiv. So I, I certainly want to ask you more about your activities on, on the asset return front, but the, another thing I wanted to ask you about that relates to the Maidan revolution and its aftermath is my understanding, and I'm by no means an expert in uh, Ukraine, is that subsequent to the Maidan revolution and the end of the Yanukovych regime, there were a number of reforms in Ukraine that created a number of new specialized anti-corruption institutions, a special investigative bureau, a special prosecutor's office, and uh, an anti-corruption prevention office. Can you explain a little bit what these new institutions were and how they operate? What were they supposed to do? And were there other very important anti-corruption reforms that I've neglected to mention that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the Maidan revolution? Actually, we were part of all this immediate reaction and request for the anti-corruption reform in Ukraine uh, back in 2014. So the logics was based on two pillars. First pillar, we were advocating for the legislation which opened up the country and which made the country as much transparent as possible in terms of who owns what, uh, in terms of how state budget is being spent. So very particular results of this reform are electronic system of asset declarations of public officials. In Ukraine, we have one of the most profound systems in the world of electronic asset declarations. Ukrainian public officials must declare even beneficial ownership in companies uh, overseas. They must declare their hard cash. And another example is company registry which includes information about beneficial ownership. We were first country in the world, actually before the United Kingdom, which uh, established such a registry. Another question is whether it is that, you know, verified information there. But anyway, we, we've got this done in, in Ukraine back in 2015-16. Public procurement uh, system, transparency in public procurement. So all that together, if combined, could be and is actually a powerful tool for investigative journalists and civil society activists who want to watchdog their government, who wants to follow the money of taxpayers, actually to reveal and expose wrongdoings and expose corruption. So this is one pillar of post-Maidan reforms. And another pillar of post-Maidan reforms is actually sanctioning corruption. Because one thing you report about corruption, another thing that no one reacts. And in this pillar, our vision was to focus on setting up new institutions from scratch. 
So we could decide whether we should reform existing prosecution office, existing judiciary system, existing police uh, offices. But actually, these agencies were so crooked and so engaged in corruption and covering up corruption that it would take for ages, actually, to reform them if successful reform happened. It was much more easier to focus on smaller agency setting up from scratch. And here where the notion of investigative body, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, emerges, and specialized anti-corruption prosecution and high anti-corruption court. So all these three institutions, they are different agencies, but they are part of the one circle of institutions in charge for investigating, prosecuting, and deciding in the courts grant corruption cases. So the end result of this has to be fair verdicts of the courts where perpetrators have to be finally jailed and their assets have to be confiscated and where innocent people actually should be free from political persecution. And this is where our attention was focused during the last three or four years. Uh, There are some good results. There are some challenges. High anti-corruption court is still not working because it was the last in this series of anti-corruption institutional reforms we were advocating for. But it is definitely something that is shaking up the system and, and something that is changing the country. The ideal scenario would be to use the best case stories and best success stories of these three institutions and replicate them into other law enforcement and judicial agencies in Ukraine. So our vision is that that these anti-corruption institutions should become a push for the entire big reform in the criminal justice sector of Ukraine. So great. I want to ask about a bunch of things that you just spoke about. And maybe the first thing I want to pick up on is how you observe that for both of these pillars, what you might call the, the prevention pillar and the sanctioning pillar, There have been some successes, but also some challenges or setbacks. Let me ask you about each pillar one at a time and get your perspective on where you think the biggest successes have come and what you think the biggest challenges or disappointments have been. So let's start with that first pillar on prevention of corruption, transparency, that whole cluster of issues. In your mind, where do you think things have gone well, but also where do you see the greatest challenges or disappointments or areas that you think need to be further reformed in that pillar? Well, in regards to the um, beneficial ownership information, we have the obligation of companies to submit information about natural persons who are behind the ultimate control of the company. However, the information submitted is not verified. And very often it's like out of trash-like information. So one of our focuses now is actually to push Ministry of Justice of Ukraine to make the verification of this information and to actually have also the sanctioning regime against companies which submit false information uh, about beneficial ownership of their companies. In regards to asset declarations, I think probably we went wrong initially with adding too many uh, public officials into one requirement to submit asset declarations. There are probably more than a million people who submit these asset declarations. Probably there had to be a kind of separation of the amount of information which has to be submitted by senior officials and lower officials. 
Uh, so we were focusing on the top officials, and it has to be focused. These officials have to get the most of the scrutiny. So it caused some kind of, not protest, but negative feedback on the entire system of asset declaration, because it's actually, it takes some time to fill in and submit this form. And then if you have too many asset declarations in the system of lower officials, which are not that important, then the agency which has power to verify that will better focus on the low-level officials than on senior officials. Um, and this is where the failure happened, uh, the failure with Anti-Corruption Preventive Commission. This is the commission which was, it's different from these three other agencies, right? So it's another preventive commission, which is supposed to focus on verification of asset declarations. And this commission is entire failure. It has to be redone from, from scratch again. This is the example where the institution failed because of its poor management. What, what we are moving now, we are moving now the idea of the rebooting of this preventive commission with the focus of the selection procedure of its management. And selection, a procedure, is the key to success of any institution, any law enforcement and judicial institution in Ukraine. Because people decide whether it will be a success story or whether it will be a failure. And if wrong people are appointed into these positions, if they are loyal to a certain political party or to a certain politician, uh, or if they have low integrity background or lack professional skills, the institution will fail. There will be a lot of pressure to it. And actually, all these four agencies, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecution, Preventive Commission, Anti-Corruption Court, they have different selection processes of its management. And what differentiates success stories from failures is actually the presence of foreign independent high professional experts in the actual selection commission. So that's a nice transition to the second pillar. And I wanted to ask you the same kind of question there. Where have the greatest successes been? What would you point to and say this was this worked really well, this is a model that maybe other countries or jurisdictions would want to look to, and where would you say there have been disappointments or challenges or setbacks on the enforcement sanctioning pillar? So, enforcement sanctioning pillar. In regards of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, they are collecting evidence, but this evidence is presented to courts by prosecutors. And according to the Ukrainian constitution, we can't have a separate prosecution agency. It has to be part of the entire prosecution uh, system. So, therefore, specialized anti-corruption prosecutor was created, which is formally part of the prosecutor general office, but it enjoys some guarantees of independence. And the selection of head of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine and specialized anti-corruption prosecution office was different. In, in regards to anti-corruption prosecution office, there was too much influence from the old traditional prosecutor general office. There were four members in the commission which represented prosecution general office, which were part of the system. And these members actually influenced a lot the outcome of the selection. And unfortunately, not the best candidates were selected. But also the presence of a foreign expert and, and NGO expert, we actually had our uh, representative there, helped to prevent the worst candidates from being appointed. So we've got kind of unknown person 
to be appointed as head of the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor Office, Nazar Holodnitsky. But at the end, he showed his loyalty to some politicians. He intimidates another prosecutors, and he blocks investigations of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. So this guy has to go, and it's our call now for the, the second year that a demand for head of the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor to resign. In terms of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, the situation is much better. So there are, of course, the, the head of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine is not ideal, but he proved that Anti-Corruption Bureau can trigger investigations against any person disregarding from which political party is this person. And they were creating some sort of free spaces and green lights for average detectives actually to, to do their job well. There are still issues regarding the system of management in the uh, actual National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine. But there was this atmosphere created where there was no push from upside down on the detectives, detectives to do their work. There are a lot of brilliant law enforcement officers working in NABU, uh, which are willing to do their job. But because of this conflict with the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, they are not able to finish a lot of their investigations. And despite the fact that there are very good prosecutors in the Anti-Corruption Prosecutor Office, the hierarchical system coming from the loyal and of law integrity uh, head of SAPU made things bad. Uh, he actually imposes sanctions against prosecutors who are acting independently. So what's, what's, what's the lessons learned here is uh, civil society watchdog activity is important on a, every day of work of new agencies, starting from the selection procedure. The selection procedure has to prevent representatives from the former crooked system to decide who will be managing the agency. It is important to have the external experts with high professional background in the selection process, not uh, recommending, but actually being in the selection process and being a decision maker in the selection process. It truly helps to safeguard the selection. What else? The High Anti-Corruption Court. Initially, we didn't advocate for the High Anti-Corruption Court. We were thinking, okay, if investigators and prosecutors are good and evidence is, is uh, of high quality, then it will be obvious for the courts uh, what kind of decisions to make. But the first cases brought to courts by NABU show that it's not. Courts were and still are delaying hearings. They are blocking some investigative steps at the pre-trial investigation stage. And this is because we lack the entire reform of the judicial system. Former President Poroshenko promised this reform, and he'd done some steps. But they were uh, like a fig leaf, so it, it was not the real reform. And the key to failure was actually the, the selection procedure of, of judges to the Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court of Ukraine was rebooting, civil society had right to analyze candidates and to ban them. However, this ban was not obligatory. And the High Qualification Commission of Judges, which was in charge for the selection of the Supreme Court judges, was ignoring the ban list coming from civil society. 
And this is why we changed the approach in the selection of anti-corruption court. It's a small court, and not that many judges are, were selected. However, we had the panel of foreign experts, which had the crucial role in the selection process. So this panel had opportunity to access all files of, candidate, of all candidates, analyze them, and if there were questions about integrity or professionalism of these judges, the panel had power to interview the candidate. So they interviewed dozens of candidates. Within these interviews, they were able to verify the you know, suspicious about candidates and actually ban some candidates. And it was very hard for a high qualification commission of judges to ignore that ban. They had to get um, two-third votes, uh, if I recall well, to unban the decision of the foreign council experts. So, and this caused that most of the banned candidates by the foreign experts were not accepted. It's very different result from the Supreme Court selection, where most of the banned candidates by civil society were accepted. So I think that this is indicator that high anti-corruption court has all chances to become a success story. And it is also an indicator that similar approach of engaging foreign experts in the selection of judges could be replicated in other countries. I'm very glad that you brought up that aspect of the selection process for the high anti-corruption court, because this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's also a role for foreign experts to play in the selection of the members of the investigative bureau, NABU. Is that correct or not? National Anti-Corruption Bureau? It, it is not prescribed in the law. It's not The law is not just limiting who can be the, in the selection process. The law on NABU simply says that there are nine people, three appointed by parliament, three by president, three by prime minister office, which will be the selection commission. But what we pushed immediately was the list of best of the best candidates civil society thinks could be in this selection uh, commission. And we had a number of uh, foreigners there. So we're thinking, okay, why not? We are not limited. limited. And we were lucky enough uh, for Parliament to appoint Giovanni Kessler at that time, the EU anti-fraud office chief, to become the member. So, but it was not obligation in the law. With high anti-corruption court, it was actually obligation in the law to appoint foreigners in the public council of foreign experts with a very clear set of powers. So formally, this council was kind of part of the selection procedure and part of advisory agencies for the Ukrainian High Qualification Commission of Judges. But this council had really crucial role in the selection process. So, okay, that, thank you for the clarification. So for NABU, the investigative bureau, there was foreign involvement, but it wasn't enshrined in the law. The law didn't prohibit it, and civil society and other groups were able to successfully push for the inclusion of foreign voices on the selection commission. But for the high anti-corruption court, the more recently created institution, the law creates a formal body of foreign experts who play a kind of screening role and can block or attempt to block candidates who are believed not to meet the standards of integrity and competence and so forth. So what's so fascinating to me about this is 
is that it seems quite unusual. I'm not sure if it's unique to Ukraine. I haven't studied every country in the world, but it certainly seems quite unusual for there to be a formal role for foreign experts in the selection of judges in the domestic criminal justice system. Can you say a little bit more about where this idea came from? Were there models in other countries that you were drawing on, or was this basically a homegrown Ukrainian innovation to create a foreign expert panel in the judicial selection process? I think it was our uh, Ukraine-born solution. Where it came from, it came actually from practical cases and observation what worked in the selection of National Anti-Corruption Bureau and what didn't work in the selection of Preventive Commission and the Supreme Court. So it was clear that the presence of the foreigners can impact significantly the outcome of the selection process. Because in the, the country where the entire political elite used to behave in the environment where they control judiciary, where they control prosecution, it's really hard for the local members of the selection commission to be independent and to resist pressure. The person can have, you know, enormous desire to, to make some good things. The person in the selection commission might not be corrupt, but some sort of feel of loyalties that this person was selected to select the background history of the person, all that together makes local members of the selection commission vulnerable to pressure or to manipulations. But if we have foreign experts, they preserve their independence and care about their reputation. If they come here, they try to do their work very well. And if they are also being backed up, or if they are hearing to the civil society voices in Ukraine, it reinforces both the impact of foreign experts and the impact of civil society. This was the case study of the Supreme Court. We had civil society with good analytical reports about bad candidates. But civil society could not convince the local selective commission to ban some candidates. But in the case of anti-corruption court, Civil society was doing their public uh, analysis of the candidates, and we did as well. Foreign experts did non-public analysis of the candidates and interviewed about, for example, uh, the origin of their assets in the asset declaration, or about the reasons of some of their decisions which were uh, overruled in the European Court of Human Rights. And actually this worked. I think now in the High Corruption Court we have very good combination of, of people, professionals. I'm not sure whether all of them are perfect, of course not, but the worst candidates, which had track record of bad integrity, are out. So I would imagine that the idea of having foreign experts involved in the selection of high anti-corruption court judges, despite the advantages you just described, would be politically controversial. I'm from the United States, and there's an extreme negative reaction to anything resembling foreign involvement. Was it politically controversial in a country like Ukraine to say we're going to have foreign experts playing a key role in selecting the judges who will be presiding over corruption cases? And if it was, how were you and other advocates of this proposal able to succeed in getting it through. Because again, I would imagine there would be many Ukrainian citizens who 
don't like corruption, who would like a strong anti-corruption court, but who would get very nervous about the idea that part of the selection was being outsourced to non-Ukrainians. Believe me or not, but actually not that many Ukrainians who are willing to fight corruption are nervous about Western foreign experts being part of the selection. And this is what polls tell us. We did a polling, not we, but the independent sociology uh, uh, companies did a polling asking citizens whom you trust the most in the selection of anti-corruption judges. I think this was the way how the question was formulated. And there were foreign experts and civil society whom citizens trust the most. And in Ukraine, which is occupied by Russia, the presence of Westerners and Western experts with credibility is actually added value and added trust. So we don't care as Ukrainians about well-trained, high-integrity Western experts to be part of the selection processes where they guard the due process. Because we want to build the due process like in the Western countries, like in the United States, the due process of building independent institutions. You guys have track record of building independent judiciary and law enforcement institutions. Therefore, we trust you to come here and help us to guard this due process. Of course, politicians were trying to use this argument, but it was quite weak because it was not bought by, by, by citizens of Ukraine. They tried to say about, oh, sovereignty, uh, you know, we are a sovereign country, we have to guard our sovereignty. But the, the state is weak, we can't guard our sovereignty in, in a very obvious case of territory. The institutions are weak to prevent Ukraine from being invaded by Russia. Institutions are weak to preserve the security of the citizens and preserve rule of law. Therefore, we have to give up on some of our uh, absolute sovereignty and outsource part of the process. It's not all process, but part of the process to the Western experts. And we are already doing a lot as conditions from IMF and from the EU in terms of our reforms. And these are good reforms, good conditions. If we are receiving billions of dollars in the financial assistance, we can also engage foreign experts into safeguarding the selection procedures. And I would tell you even more that we would be keen to explore using this system of crucial role of foreigners in the selection of high anti-corruption judges into other agencies which have to be rebooted in Ukraine. So we are now exploring this with the new presidential administration and we see the green light from them. So there is a high likelihood that we might come further and use the, the Council of Foreign Experts practice in rebooting other institutions, the prosecution, anti-judicial system. As from the practical point of view, we have to use what works. So you mentioned just a moment ago another topic I wanted to ask you about, and that's the role of the international community, the IMF, the EU, the U.S. government, other international actors, particularly donors, in engaging with Ukraine, and in particular, pushing the government to adopt various kinds of anti-corruption or more broadly good governance reforms, sometimes through conditions, overt conditions, sometimes through pressure that not doesn't necessarily take the form of, of a specific conditionality. So talk a little bit more about that and how that role of the international community has affected 
anti-corruption reform in Ukraine and the extent to which that kind of foreign pressure has been helpful and also whether there have been any mistakes or other downsides to the role of the international donor community in engaging with Ukraine on anti-corruption governance reform. The pressure of the international community was crucial from the very early stages and the very early days after the Revolution of Dignity. So a lot of foreign partners came to Ukraine in early 2014 and they met not only with officials but with civil society. They met with us. They were consulting what is what are the practical things and tools which could be introduced in Ukraine which could deliver quick results in regards of good governance and anti-corruption. And we were discussing with them our theory of change and they implemented a lot what we suggested into the conditionalities. And then it was this joint synergetic pressure of foreign partners which had similar conditionalities like IMF, the EU. It was reinforced with the ambassadors here. And it was pressure also coming from the civil society, from our organization and from other organizations, which were pushing for good governance and anti-corruption reform. This enabled us to push government to deliver reforms they didn't like and they didn't want to deliver. And there was a huge fight with the presidential administration and with the parliament and with the government. But as Ukraine needed money and conditions were crucially important before receiving this money, they had to do something. They had to implement some radical reforms, not only in the anti-corruption, but also, for example, in the financial sector, cleaning up Ukrainian banks, which used to be money laundering banks of some uh, kleptocrats and crooks. What were the downsides of, of this approach? It worked initially during three or four years. But now we see that the leverage of international partners is going down. And as I understand, this is because there is actually the global challenge towards democracy and democratic liberal world. And Western governments have now more and more national problems which they have to face with. And Ukraine is now positioned more as a problem than a place to get quick results and, and quick solutions. And we have Russia, which is contributing to this. So now geopolitics plays against Ukraine. Because Ukraine, disregarding that we have actually impressive reforms in anti-corruption, but also in other sectors, Ukraine is still kind of preserved as the failed study, a source, fa failed country, a, a source of problems. But the pressure on Ukraine to deliver results in good governance and anti-corruption has to continue in order to finish what we have already started. There are good results in Ukraine in this direction. And these good results happened because of the synergetic pressure of the international community and um, Ukrainian civil society. In terms of our approach, we are now talking more to the average citizens. We are now running more broad awareness campaigns and civic movements. We would want to have more people to support the uh, anti-corruption institutions which bring success stories and people who are ready to protect the reformers but to demand government to do the results. And in certain moment we didn't pay enough attention on black PR and manipulative campaign which was started by people in the government which jointly with some security forces 
started using the army of trolls, started to blackmail people who fight with corruption in Ukraine. There were documentary stories in the national TV called Following the Grand Eaters, where members of my organization, but also some other good people from politics and from NGOs, were named as evil for the country. It was a mix of fake news with manipulations. And it was aired in the prime time on the national TV, the most broad-viewed national TV in Ukraine. So the challenge of fake news, manipulations, uh, breaking trust to the reformers is very high now. And civil society groups in Ukraine and pro-reformers have to spend a lot of their time now on communication and fighting against fake news attacks, manipulations attacks, sometimes physical attacks, in order to drive for for the reforms. So this is the challenge uh, we are facing now, but this challenge is very similar to the challenge in the United States and in the EU. Fake news, manipulations, this is something that is testing now the liberal democracy. And Ukraine is just the battlefield where these issues are probably the most uh, obvious. And when we find solution to these issues in Ukraine, it could be then replicated to other countries. So we're, we're almost at the end of our time, but I wanted to make sure I asked you about the recent political change in Ukraine and how that might affect your work specifically, your organization's work, but more, also more generally the struggle to promote anti-corruption in Ukraine. So there was a presidential election this past year. There's a new president that I don't know very much about. I gather that he's a former television personality without much political experience. And as an American, I get a little bit nervous when I hear the new president is a former television personality without much political experience. Um, But I'm curious to hear from you what your thoughts are on what the new administration portends for the kind of work that your organization and other anti-corruption organizations in Ukraine are doing here. Well, first of all, the new administration already publicly supported the anti-corruption agenda, uh, which is advocated by more than 20 civil society organizations in Ukraine. So they publicly committed to a reboot of the judiciary, prosecution reform, to strengthening the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecution Office, to relaunching the Preventive Commission. So, and I'm happy with that. It means that it, it there is already a political commitment, and once there will be different parliament and the presidential office will have actually the largest faction uh, in the parliament. They will have the political tool how to make these changes happen. So in this regards, I'm optimistic. But still, it's a very new president. He used to be a comedian. And a lot of people in the party list are very new. We don't know what to expect from them. There are not that many, but still are, candidates with links and ties to some oligarchs and kleptocrats, so it's not absolutely a new political party, uh, the servant of the people party. But there are actually a lot of young people with not that much experience in politics. So whether it's good or bad for the country, I don't know. But for sure there will be changes. And there is a bit of opportunity opening up. For us, it's a way to push up for the positive agenda in the good governance, anti-corruption, criminal justice for all these young people who are entering the politics and want to deliver good results. And President Zelensky seemed to opening up the door for such positive results. So not all his appointments and steps are positive. To be honest, I was expecting worse 
results from President Zelensky, so I'm more optimistic now. He has some some good decisions, but also some bad decisions. However, I see that the door opening from the presidential administration. And we hope that we will have some quick wins and success stories in anti-corruption fight in Ukraine with these open doors. Well, I think emphasizing the opening of a door is a wonderfully optimistic message on which to end our conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, my guest today on Kickback has been Daria Kalanyuk, the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine. Daria, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this morning. I'm glad to be useful. Thank you.